Our Old Testament lesson is found in Genesis chapter 12, reading verses 1 through 9. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went, as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarah his wife and Lot his brother's son and all their possessions that they had gathered and the people that they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abraham, Abram passed through the land to the place of Shechem, to the oak of Morah. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and I on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on, still going toward the Negev. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, as we come today, we come to be taught by you. You have sent your spirit that he might lead us into righteousness and truth. And so we ask that he will teach us and instruct us today. It is only in your light that we see light. And so illumine our hearts and our minds. Speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. Amen. Today we do begin a new sermon series in which we'll work through the chapters of Genesis 12 through 22, taking a close look at the life of Abraham. Of course, in our passage today, the name Abram is mentioned. His name will be changed to Abraham, and so please forgive me if I just use the full name that the Bible later gives him. It's too confusing for everyone involved. But as we look at the life of Abraham, we will be considering God's purposes in revealing himself to Abraham and what this says about the design of God's great plan and also what it reveals about our pilgrimage of faith today. Now, several months ago, while I was quarantined with COVID, my sons and I set up a plan to deal with the tedious nature of that, a marathon movie-watching event in which we would watch The Hobbit and then The Lord of the Rings trilogy. If it concerns you, yes, we've read the books, but we decided to spend the time watching the movies once again. With the copious amounts of time on our hands, I began to ask some questions. There were some things that I had forgotten, not remembering over 20 years ago when I last read the Lord of the Rings books and also read the shorter book, The Cimmerillion. But as I asked the questions, I was wondering exactly how everything fitted together questions about the history that preceded the drama that's found in the movies. In particular, there were questions I was asking about the origin of the rings of power. Now, one of my sons was delighted to receive that question, and you could tell that he had not been able to answer this for many people, and I regretted it somewhat because I received a rather full-bodied answer, lengthy. One of the things I learned was that my questions all pointed to one obscure source, though, 
As I asked questions about the rings of power, there was one work entitled The Cimmerillion that Tolkien had written that was about the backdrop to all of the things that happened in The Lord of the Rings. Now, most people have not read it, and I can promise you, you don't want to. It was not a bestseller for a reason. It was not well-received. It's fascinating and kind of strange. And here's the thing, is you don't really have to read it in order to be able to appreciate the whole of The Lord of the Rings or The Hobbit. You don't need to have read it to be able to enter into that story and to dive into it and to appreciate and understand what's happening. It does provide some useful background, but you don't necessarily need it. As you come to Genesis 12, and as we look at the entire narrative, though, of the life of Abraham, we need to recognize something similar about this passage. These verses, they can seem somewhat mundane, They tell us about Abraham's travel narrative as he moves from Haran into what was called Canaan, the promised land. It can seem somewhat boring, but we also don't need to underestimate the significance. That yes, you do not have to understand and know this to know God's purposes and plans in Jesus Christ, but it's extremely helpful background information. It fills in many blanks and actually puts together many puzzle pieces that you'll find in the New Testament. And specifically, it becomes important for understanding God's revelation of himself, how God has revealed himself to us in his character, in his covenant, and in his counsels, and then also what our response to that revelation looks like. And so the life of Abraham is not just sitting out there as a biography that you can read. It becomes essential information for undergirding the entire revelation of the Bible. And so this morning as we begin that series, we'll discover three things that are critical to the life of Abraham and what we learn about him and what we learn about God. First, we're going to see the resolve of God. That is what God is going to do about the problem of human sin. We'll see the design of God's plan. That's how the plan is going to unfold. And finally, we'll learn about the pilgrimage of faith that Abraham sets out on as our example. And so let's look briefly at each of those. First, we see the resolve of God. Thus far in the book of Genesis, we've had 11 chapters. It begins in chapter 1 with God creating. That is, God acted, fashioning and forming all the things that we see, all the things that are also unseen. But those purposes of God, which he made all things, have then been counteracted in chapter 3 by human sin and human rebellion. And that counteraction involves two main incidents if you were to look across Genesis 1 through, the, 1 through 11. First, in Genesis 3, we have Adam and Eve counteracting God by eating from the fruit, eating from the tree eating the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It's the only tree that God forbidden them to eat from, and yet they decided to eat from it anyway. In consuming this fruit, Adam didn't break an arbitrary set of dietary restrictions. This was no incidental commandment. But rather, when he chose to eat from this tree, when he chose to digest this fruit, He was announcing that he wanted to be wise unto himself, 
That is, he wanted to be the judge of good and evil. He wanted to be the arbiter of right and wrong. He wanted to throw off God's authority and be authoritative unto himself. This was the quest for human autonomy, to be free from God. It was a profound moment of independent self-assertion. This is what we find in Genesis 3. But there's a second movement in, of self-assertion in Genesis 11. Sinful humans there concoct a plan, and this is what they say in verse 4. Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. Now, this was far more than an ancient skyscraper. They weren't just simply having a contest to see who could build the biggest building. But rather, actually what they were doing was attempting to build a tower, or more properly, a temple, that would mediate the relationship between heaven and earth. That if they could build a tower that had enough height, they believed they could work their way into the heavenly places, that they can put themselves in the presence of God. And you see what's happening here. This was actually a religious impulse. It was the religious impulse to reconcile themselves to God. But it was also a religious impulse driven by independent self-assertion. See, they had no command from God. They had no revelation from God. They were simply working according to their own wisdom. And according to their own wisdom, in their own will, and on their own way, they were going to build themselves into the heavens. What happens with these two incidents of self-assertion then contrasts itself significantly with what happens here in chapter 12 in verses 2 and 3. Here we have God speaking to this man named Abram. And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Here God resolves, and God himself resolves, and he begins to act and he is then counteracting all that self-assertion of human beings in which we chose to eat and we chose to build, in which we were taking matters into our own hands, in which we sought to throw off the authority of God. We discarded him, wanting to be our own king and our own Lord, and then in which we sought to have a religion of our own making, of our own design and our own will. And what happens here in chapter 12 is an interruption to all of that human sinful self-assertion. And we have God asserting himself. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great. You will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. In you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And friends, this is the greatest news that the Bible contains because in the midst of all of human sin, in all the injustice and all the evil, in all the hypocrisy and all the half-heartedness, in all the ways that we fall short of God's glory, that God decides to intervene and that he asserts himself. 
He resolves to do something about that great predicament, and he takes the problem into his own hands, and he acts. And friends, this is the resolve of God in his graciousness to do something for his creation that he made good and that rebelled and turned against him. And so this is the resolve of God we find in verses 2 and 3. But second, in these same verses, we also see the design of God's plan. It's not just a resolve that is revealed, but actually we receive some structure to that. If you follow along again in verses 2, uh, 1 through 3, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed." Abram receives this promise, and the promise contained three things. There was going to be land, there was going to be blessing, and there was going to be descendants. And this was the idea of God, that by blessing this man Abram and growing his family, that he would become the father of a great nation, and that that great nation, all the effects of God's blessing on it, would spill over into all the nations and the families of the earth. And you see this idea of an evangelistic outreach into the nations is not just native to the New Testament. Just as we read in Psalm 67 that God's intent was always to bless the nations of the earth. And so God blessed Abraham, this one particular individual, blessed his descendants that they would be a blessing to everyone. A universal blessing came through a particular identification that God made with this family. And so this was the plan of God as revealed to us in his covenant with Abraham. But of course, we know as the Bible unfolds that this plan runs into somewhat of a hitch, and that hitch was Israel's sinfulness. That is that they weren't terribly interested in all of this blessing, and they decide to go after their own blessing because they too participated in this hum- human sinfulness. But then we also learn that God wasn't surprised by this, that it didn't catch him off guard, and also his plan was not foiled. He also didn't abandon that commitment to Abraham and to his offspring, that through this family, God was going to bring blessing to the nations. Rather, we're told in Galatians 3 that Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of that promise to Abraham, that he is the seed, he is the offspring. And that being the righteous one, God had singled him out for a particular role. And God had singled and filed down everything to this one man, Jesus Christ, that he is the seed and offspring, and that through him would come blessing to the nations. And he brings that blessing by being a sacrifice being cursed upon a tree, standing in our place, receiving our judgment. And then because he's the righteous one rising from the dead and ascending into God's presence, where he sits at the right hand, and he sits there representing us and mediating for us, and it's in him that we are then reconciled to God. It's not simply about becoming part of the Israelite family, but it's becoming in Jesus 
And so this very particular individual, Jesus, the Son of God, brings universal blessing. And this is the design of God in which sinful human beings can be brought into his presence and reconciled to himself. Now, several years ago, I visited my parents, and as we shared dinner together, we were looking at the dining room table, and there were several burn marks in the table. And so I began to note these and asked my mom, hey, what happened? There's no children in the house. You know, what, what's going on with the dining room table? Why are there holes in it? And my mom then explained that there were several flower vases on the dining room table, and in the late afternoon, the sun would come in through the window, and it would refract through the glass, and then the glass would direct it into a concentrated beam where it'd be focused, and it would literally burn holes in the dining room table. She came home one day, and the dining room was filled with smoke, <laughs> burning from the light coming through, the reflect, being refracted through the glass. And friends, this is the design of God's election of Israel. He concentrates the problem of sin with that nation, and then he concentrates the problem of sin further in Jesus Christ. Though he was sinless, he is condemned for our sins. And so in the great mystery and the providence of God and his great design that excels all of our wisdom, but which he has now fully revealed to us, we see how he undoes this human rebellion against him. He brings Jesus into judgment on our behalf, and it's concentrated, focused, burns a hole there. And yet through him we are reconciled to God. This is the design of his plan. But finally here in this passage in Genesis chapter 12, we also learn about our response. That is our pilgrimage of faith. And our passage records this in kind of striking simplicity in which Abraham is given to us as a model of faith, as a model believer. There are two parts to his response. The first is simply that Abraham departs, that is, that he goes. If you'll follow in verse 1, you see the command. Now the Lord said to Abraham, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. Then in verse 4, you see Abram's response. So Abram went as the Lord had told him. The command to go is a very strong expression in the original. It means something like completely and intentionally disassociate yourself. Okay? So it's a little bit stronger in the original than just go. Leave it all behind is the message. Leave it all behind and go out following me. So Abraham doesn't know where he's going, but yet he charges out in faith and obedience. He leaves behind all the securities of life in the ancient world. He leaves behind the securities of extended family. He leaves behind the securities of land. He leaves behind some of the securities of wealth. And he does so to sojourn in an unknown land that God was promising to him. He only does this because he believes the promise is true and that the promise is good. And he embraces that promise even though it was very intangible. 
He had nothing to show for it. Land, blessing, descendants. After all, Abraham is 75 and his wife is barren. And God has told him that his descendants, of which he had none, would be a blessing to all the nations. And so when Abram goes, when he enters into this journey in this pilgrimage, it is a pilgrimage of faith in which he is trusting God. He has nothing tangible to stand on except the promise of God. Hebrews 11 says like this, By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. And friends, you and I are called into that same pilgrimage. That we have promises from God. That those promises have been secured in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But yet we live by faith and not by sight. We too enter into a world of great unknowns and uncertainties. And what we are called to do is we're called to abandon all those former things, completely and intentionally disassociating ourselves with our past, cutting that off and journeying in a new way, following after God and his promise. Because Jesus says a similar word to us. He says, follow me. He asks us to leave those securities and those habits that would hinder us from embracing that promise. No matter how much common sense they may seem to make, no matter how compelling they are, we are to depart and walk in faith. And this is what Abraham, the model believer, does. He departs, he disassociates himself from his past. But second, we also see in these verses that he worships. In verses 4 through 9, we have Abram's itinerary as he arrives in the promised land. We have a record of his first sojourn as he travels from north to south. He passes through Shechem, and then he heads down south toward the Negev. As he did so, he stops twice for a particular activity. Follow with me in verses 7 and 8. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and I on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And so there twice we have recorded for us Abram's response that as God revealed his promise to him and said, yes, this is the land where you will sojourn, where you will live, where your descendants will become a blessing. This is the land where I will make myself known and through you all the families of the earth will be blessed. Abram's response is recorded for us because not only did he go out in faith and sojourn with God and walk by faith and not by sight, but also he worshiped. He worshiped at this time at sacred sites, but you'll notice something that he built his own altar because Abram was claiming this land by building these altars. He was not using the altars of other gods. He was using the altar of true God, the God he served, and he was offering thanksgiving and declaring that land, this belongs to God. This is his, and this land is to be in his service. 
And friends, this is the second example that we receive of Abram's life. Not only was he a man committed to faith, building his life in the promise of God, but he was a man committed to worship, offering his thanks to God, signaling that this belongs to God. And when we gather Lord's Day by Lord's Day, when we gather to worship and we call all the nations to worship and we announce God's promises and God's blessing that are ours through Jesus, we are announcing that the world belongs to God, that this is his place and that he will return to renew and restore it. And we have that promise by faith and it's not by sight. Many would laugh and hold it in derision, but God asks that we hold tight to that promise that Jesus' resurrection from the dead is the down payment. That's the guarantee. And because he is up from the dead, so too God will restore our bodies from death. He will renew us and he'll renew all things, removing the purge and the stain of sin. And between those times, we are called to sojourn, to this pilgrimage of faith, Embracing those promises, not knowing always where we're going, like Abraham, sometimes confused by events, sometimes extremely uncertain, but knowing that God's promises are trustworthy, they're true, they're certain, they're secure. And so we hold fast to him and we offer ourselves to him in worship, claiming the world for him. And so friends, in what can seem like a very incidental chapter in the Bible, we actually find an enormous pivot. We see God revealing himself, intervening on behalf of human beings who turned against him, announcing that he intends to do something new, that he is counteracting all of human self-assertion, all of the will of humanity in which we defy him, in which we seek to wrestle the world and its control away from him. He defies that and says to one man that I will make you great in a blessing. And it's because of that promise that we see the design of his plan, that that plan flows directly to Jesus, who's the seed and offspring of Abraham. And in and through Jesus, we share, we are now those offspring. We are the children of Abraham that all the judgment of God against human sin was focused there. The problem was concentrated in him so that we could be free, so that we could be reconciled to God. Then receiving that gift, we can respond in the pilgrimage of faith and worship. And this is our task today as we receive these promises, these great promises from Jesus. And so let's ask God for his help to do just that. Father, we do thank you for this great story of Abraham, of his life in which he went out into a foreign land, not knowing where he is going. And as he goes out, he trusts your promises, and he believed in your goodness and your truth, and he offered himself in worship. And you have brought about your great blessing to all the nations in and through him. We thank you for Jesus Christ who comes in the fulfillment of this promise. Thank you for the blessing to the nations and our participation in that blessing. Capture our hearts. Would we continue to follow in faith, departing from what once captivated us and offering ourselves in worship to you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.